and welcome back to The Bunker with me, Ros Taylor. On this week's edition, the great unlock begins with schools, shops and the chance to see friends and family all returning over the course of the next few weeks. But with deaths in Britain far higher than mainland Europe and the proposed track and trace system still in the works, is the nation ready for it? Meanwhile, just as Dominic Cummings was getting roasted by the papers, by total coincidence, a section of social media turns on the press. What does it mean when populists turn people against the media? And what kind of state is the media going to be in after all this? And throughout this crisis, we've been told the key to beating coronavirus is British common sense. But what actually is it? And are those at the top right to politicise it? All this and more in today's Bunker. Before we begin, just a quick reminder that we're doing another live stream on Zoom for our much-loved Patreon backers next week on the evening of Thursday, the 11th of June. They got early bird warnings of how to register, and if you want to join in, why not sign up to support us too? As well as the live streams, you'll get our shows early with no adverts, plus mugs and t-shirts and loads of other benefits. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Now, let's meet today's panel. Comedian, writer, ex-New Labour spin doctor, editor of the Londoner Diary in the Evening Standard, and recently star of Have I Got News For You, it's Aisha Hazarika. Hello, Aisha, how are you? Uh, I'm all right, Ros. Quite dismayed at looking at the world um, on fire and the dystopian horror that is unfolding uh, before us. But other than that, tickety-boo. Yeah, yeah. We usually do our best to keep it light at the start of the show, but the news this week is irretrievably grim, especially the chaos in America around the protests at the police killing of George Floyd. Can we, on this side of the Atlantic, can we fully comprehend what's going on here? I think we're all sort of in shock. I think we should be able to. I think the, I think what happens over here is because the violence is more pronounced in America because everyone is allowed to have a gun, um, and they do have a complete lunatic in charge. Um, they, you know, we sort of think, oh, well, that's America. But, and we kind of look over with a sort of, oh, they're, they're terrible. They've always been terrible. But actually, it is a time for this country to have quite a like long, hard look at itself. Our track record on sort of race relations is nothing to be proud at. Recently, we've had the Windrush scandal, Grenfell, you know, go home bans. Uh, when I was when I began working in politics, there was the whole, you know, mishandling of the, the Metropolitan Police and the, the Stephen Lawrence murder and institutional racism and nothing is really changing. Is it an exaggeration to see this in the same terms as the 1992 LA riots or 1968 riots after the murder of Martin Luther King? No, I mean, I think the um, the parallels are are really stark and that they're not overblown. This does feel like it's a huge moment in um, sort of modern American history. And of course you have this, um, and it wasn't just this one death as shocking as it was. There have been so many incidents. And now of course, in an age of social media, they are captured. There was an incident of a a woman basically just lying on the phone about um, a a black man she saw in, in, in the park. And I feel like, this has been building and building and building. And of course, on top of that, you have Donald Trump as the president there, and that has made a huge, huge difference. I mean, his absolute failure to show any empathy um, or any understanding is really quite staggering. But I suppose he's at least been brutally honest about what he stands for. So I do think this is a, a, a very, very big moment. But I just hope that some change can can come of it. And it, I mean, if Donald Trump still gets elected after after all of this, I mean, 
what you know america's going to be in such a difficult difficult place not just america i think the whole of the world watching let's not dwell on that prospect um also joining us is helen lewis author of the book difficult women a history of feminism in 11 fights and also a staff writer on the atlantic hi helen hello what have your editors and colleagues on the Atlantic been saying? Is there a sense that this Black Lives Matter moment is going to change things in the way previous instances obviously didn't? I think the really interesting thing from a journalistic perspective is it's happening in the context of a presidential election, exactly as Aisha says. And I think the problem is that there's, there's a feeling this is just cyclical. You know, we remember back to Rodney King and, and, and those riots after that episode of police brutality, that there's a huge amount of, of anger and an acknowledgement that there is something systemically wrong, but whether or not it ever gets translated into political change. And that's the thing that I find most dismaying. Um, Barack Obama published a, a, the only good medium blog that anyone has ever done, it turns out, uh, yesterday, sort of talking about the kind of things that you can do and actually saying police reform is really not just a national issue it's a primarily it's a local and community-based one and you know the, the thing that's just so striking about it is if you could write a menu of things that would immediately make some of these situations better right as Aisha's already mentioned you know the idea that gun carrying is 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 so widespread means that there's a kind of literally an arms race with police the fact that the presumption on the use of force you know things like the fact that that the neck hold that was used on George Floyd that which is only supposed to be used in when suspect you know suspects are actively resisting you simply shouldn't exist at all it shouldn't be a, a restraint mechanism and, and actually to speak to the point there are ongoing questions about the kind of restraints that are used in youth detention centers in britain there have been cases of, of young people being um being choked in similar ways um and, and the use of things like spit hoods and for example and stuff like that so as aisha says the situations might not be directly comparable but there are definitely reflections that britain could make on its own um, racial problems from this situation this week's special guest is a self-described long-form comedian and regular-length novelist, occasional sports pundit, Mock the Week and Fighting Talk regular, and long-suffering Bristol City fan. It's Mark Watson. Hello, Mark. Welcome to the bunker. Uh, thanks very much. Yeah, long-suffering football fan seems sort of to be put in a different context now that there isn't any football at all. I'm starting to wish I had the suffering back, to be honest. You, we brought you in on the least funny week in at least six months. It's been a reasonably uh, cheer-free week, as everybody has already said. Yeah, When in the first 30 seconds of a podcast, someone uses the phrase looming dystopia or whatever it was, <laughs> you do feel you could be in for a long hour. But it's true. There's very little point in trying to make light of most of what we're seeing at the moment. You've been watching Trump closely on this one. Do you think the protests are a turning point for him? I, I don't know that anything ever is a turning point. This is the problem. I think... Um, well, it's a bit like Helen was saying about this sort of um, sense of almost of ennui that everyone seems to have about the insane things happening in America. If it were possible for Trump to face a turning point in terms of public opinion, you'd think that he'd given uh, the public about 750 opportunities to turn against him by now. There's no doubt, as Aisha said, that these events are enormous and uh, will leave quite a big dent in the, um, the American psyche and also that the world is paying really close attention. But it's, having witnessed the past few years, it's just pretty hard to have faith in the idea that almost any events can actually unseat Trump because the sort of people that are bolstering his status and keeping him in office don't seem to care too much about what's happening, to put it as politely as I can. And, but I don't mean what's happening now. I just mean the phenomenon of support for Trump, I suppose, like with a lot of, uh, people like him doesn't seem to have much to do with, um, well, it's far more to do with kind of cultish uh, belief system rather than 
evidence of him doing anything good. Yeah. Also, on top of this, you can make a case that Biden is not, a, uh, well, he is a superior alternative to Trump, but I don't know whether he's different enough or has enough charisma to take advantage of. You think that most people would be able to win an election against Trump in these circumstances, but I don't know that Biden can. And I also don't know that I'm right even to say that because you would have thought that Hillary would win if the world was proceeding as it probably should have done. On more comforting ground, uh, the football is coming back. Are you excited? Uh, even with that, I have sort of mixed feelings about it. I um, I certainly am looking forward to it. I've been um, uh, kind of de- deprived of football. It's made me realise how much of my um, brain space is given over to pointless stuff like sport because the complete withdrawal of all sport has definitely left me with a void to fill. I do wonder whether it is a good idea to do it. They've started playing again in Germany, obviously, but it feels as if the Germans um, handled the lockdown a lot more cleanly to start with. Some players are saying they don't feel safe doing it. So I think it's going to be football without a crowd um, played out kind of in this odd way where you can hear the players shouting to you. So it's more like a PE lesson. It's already quite a strange thing to watch, but there's also going to be this backdrop of um, uncertainty about whether there's, whether we should be having even modest sized public gatherings what I'm saying is I absolutely will be watching all of it and rubbing my hands. But at the same time, as with a lot of things that we're being given back at the moment, I'm not totally convinced that we have actually waited long enough for them. And uh, Hat Mancock, sorry, Matt Hancock, old joke, the MP for Newmarket Racecourse, he proudly announced that horse racing was due to return on Monday. Are you a betting man? Are you going to be uh, laying a bet on the GGs now they're back? No, I was kind of, as people have been saying, the... um, watching sort of official pronouncements on Twitter has become more and more surreal as time has gone on. But when I saw this tweet saying, horse racing's back, wonderful news for our wonderful sport, I did start to wonder whether I'd enter the spoof version of Twitter because I think it's well documented how much damage was probably done by Cheltenham Festival being allowed to happen. I think I'd be keeping quite a low profile uh, even if I was sneaking horse racing back in. I don't think I'll be having a bet unless you can spread that on things like the second wave of the disease, which I'm not sure you probably can. I mean, once again, it will all be done in the safest way possible, I'm sure. Once again, it does feel like an inessential form of life to come back. I'm saying this is a sort of rabid sports fan. And it's hard to escape the impression that things like football and racing are being rushed back because of commercial pressures, the betting industry and so on. Whereas something like cricket, which would be a lot easier to pull off in a social distancing way, doesn't have that lobby behind it. So in short, even the good things that are coming back... um, I feel uneasy about it. Let's begin with the main focus of this week, the great unlocking. Last Thursday, Boris Johnson announced plans to reopen much of the nation's activities, with some schools, markets, car showrooms and Parliament back up and running as of Monday, with other non-essential shops due to open up a fortnight later. Groups of up to six people can meet outdoors in England now, meaning friends and family can reunite after 10 weeks of lockdown, not to mention have that apparently all-important barbecue, if they so wish. But with the proposed track and trace system still in the works and UK death numbers far higher than our European counterparts, is this a good idea? And might FOMO be replaced by FOGO, fear of going out? One Cambridge academic called for a people's lockdown on the assumption that the government didn't care about a second wave, so we had to take it into our own hands. Aisha, the PM's announcement was greeted with, let's say, a mixed reception on Thursday. Do you think this is the right moment to begin opening up, or are we moving too quickly? I 
think it's sort of inevitable now, especially because of the whole Dominic Cummings fiasco. I mean, Dominic Cummings single-handedly, you know, unlocked the, the, the lockdown. And I think with the, you know, warm weather coming and, uh, and some, you know, genuine fears about what's happening with the, with the economy, I think they ended up um, sort of painting themselves into a corner because the coming stuff was so, so badly handled. And um, they wanted to, I think, kind of capitalise on a sort of VE kind of escape day, a virus escape day feeling of, of euphoria. I think that's that's where they've kind of ended up. So I think they've gone for something quite tactical, um, but strategically, I think it may well pose them problems particularly if there's a a second spike and even though there are still very quite draconian even though they have you know loosened things there are still a lot of draconian measures like this whole you it's now illegal to have sex with somebody that you're not sort of married to or you don't live with we've gone back to sort of puritanical victorian times jacob rees mogg this no, is your you, era um you can have sex in the garden but you can't have sex uh, inside. You, that's right you can go dogging but you can't actually have sex with your boyfriend inside your house i'm so glad we've clarified that i mean welcome to modern yeah. britain it really is amazing um so there's all these kind of like weird like rules and, and regulations but the truth is nobody's obeying any of them for a lot of so I think you've got you've got as ever with our country we're really divided on everything so either you're still totally you know crapping yourself inside in your toilet obviously like and you're scared to go out and you might be shielding you might not be shielding but you're very very frightened or you're part of the crew which is like basically freedom let's head off to the beaches let's head off to the parks so I think we've got this very polarized um lockdown and the messaging has just been so confused not helped by the Dominic Cummings thing that we're just in this we're just in a sort of bit of a mess really nobody really knows what's going on but most people think it's over which of the announcements do you think are justified and which which aren't? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I can really sort of pick and choose a, a few. It just there, there does seem to be a lack of coherence um, to the policies and the things that they've picked. They also do seem to be, I know we've joked about the football and the car showroom, and the, they do seem to be quite blokey. It's a bit of like a man's charter, this sort of like what you're allowed to do, um, fishing and football and, you know, shopping for cards and all that sort of thing. I just think people are really, really, really confused. I think the, 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 the problem is there's no rhyme or reason. Even the school stuff, you know, there's a big fight about, you know, how school should go back. And there is a big argument for, for kids going back, the, the attainment gap, um, you know, helping, you know, people go back to work. But again, it just hasn't been thought through. There's no kind of coherence to it. The work hadn't gone in in terms of how to make schools safe. It was quite arbitrary in terms of the classes that were picked. There isn't like wraparound um, extra childcare to help, you know, mums and dads that are going back to work. I think the general thing that's just confusing people is just that there doesn't seem to be a kind of a narrative to any of it. It does feel like someone has randomly just picked kind of weird, weird hobbies that people are allowed to do i'm just, like archery like, i'm expecting like you could do archery fencing welly throwing cheese rolling just like random things that you're allowed to do now but you can't hug your boyfriend it's very odd mark are you excited about the car showrooms opening because this means people can check their eyesight if need be yeah it's, i suppose it is useful because as we know it's almost the only way you can tell whether you're uh, going short-sighted or not is to go for a spin so i guess we'll see the nation's overall uh, optical health improve <laughs> um i don't own a car and i um actually 
don't drive. In fact, that's my alibi in this whole Cummings thing. So the uh, I'm a bit like Helen with football, probably car showroom opening is not going to, or I'm I, not sure if it was Helen or Ross who says it. Um, it was Ross, yeah. It was. It was. There you are. So um, <laughs> the, the level of uninterest some people feel about football is sort of how I feel about um, cars in general. I, I, I do agree with Aisha. It, it seems um, uh, the idea of what essential services are has obviously been uh, thrown open for quite a lot of debate by this entire thing, right from the outset where we were allowed to go out for essential shopping, but you'd see people buying things like 28 bags of Haribo. And it, it feels the sort of the same now. The, the things that are being reintroduced, as Aisha says, sort of seem to have been picked almost at random from a list, or except that some of them seem to be deliberate sops to certain industries like cars or gambling. But also, I think sometimes I underestimate how keen people are to do specific stuff. Like yesterday, there were all these images of an Ikea opening its doors and just hundreds of people pouring in. And I, I with, with no disrespect to Ikea, they certainly have some uh, uh, good practical furniture solutions and the decent meatballs, but I can't quite imagine having sat here for the past two months stewing in your own juices thinking, for God's sake, if only Ikea was back. It amazes me that that many people, it was the same with garden centres, with places like home base. Everything that's reopened has seen this enormous uh, spike in enthusiasm, which makes me think that a lot of people just do have different priorities from me because I think it will be quite a while yet before I feel like Ikea is where I want to be. And I'd, I'd have to be desperate for flat pack furniture to, to go in one of those for a while, I think. The thing is, though, some, I suppose what it comes down to is some people think that the entire lockdown was a serious exercise and that the pandemic is a genuine threat. And some people all along have thought it was nonsense and basically couldn't wait to get back out there. Yeah, it all feels a bit bread and circuses to me, I must, mm. I must admit. Helen, um, research, there's some research out from King's College London last week, and that suggested that contrary to what we might think when we look at pictures of Bournemouth Beach yesterday, the government has actually done quite a good job of scaring or persuading people into staying home. And you've got stats like one in seven kids hadn't left their home in the previous week, which is quite alarming. Are we mentally ready to get back out there and be normal yet? Well, I can only speak for myself on that, but I went out for a long walk at the end of which was a socially distanced drink last night and I had completely forgotten how to function in normal society. I was trying to think, what do you, what do you put in a handbag? And I, was, <laughs> I, I thought I was going to end up being basically like I was going on a sort of Mars mission. I was like, right, what I need is 4,000 contact lenses, 19 plasters, <laughs> you know, 7,000 tampons. Um, and I just it's really odd. There's just stuff that I haven't done for months because I haven't been more than a you know mile at distance outside from, from my house. So I think that is an underestimated point. And it's one of those things where we always talk about this. Aisha and I will have talked about this many times, about the, the importance of kind of both diversity in government and governments that look like they're people. And one of the things that, you know, this was a government of people who have gardens, you know, making rules for people who live in tower blocks. Um, and the same thing is this is a government of people who've been getting out of the house. Um, and I, I'm not sure whether or not they're fully be, you know, it's impossible to appreciate what it feels like, particularly the people who've been shielding, right? For the people who literally haven't left home for eight weeks, uh, you know, to, to understand or empathise with what that experience is like. There's some evidence from France that if you're on the left and female, you're more likely to oppose opening up. Um, and anecdotally, that feels kind of true here too. Is that because the left mistrusts this government, understandably, or is it a different mindset, a kind of greater sense of collective responsibility, do you think? 
I think you'd have to probably wait for the polling on that one. But I think that the interesting thing about for women is that the polling that we do have suggests that women generally are more risk averse, they're more cautious, um, they're more sensible. And, and, and that's actually not necessarily a problem so much with all, all men as young men in particular, you know, um, we know from car insurance premiums, they're, you know, they're much more likely to, to be indulged in kind of risk-taking behaviour. But the sort of structural problem in media terms about this is that we see so many images of people crowding together on a beach. And actually, it's the same problem that we see in the coverage of the rioting in the US. You know, this kind of the idea that the most extreme behaviour is the one that attracts all the attention. So it, it, it always distorts the story. And the fact is there will be, you know, hundreds of peaceful protests going on across the states today, yesterday. Um, but the images that we're seeing are of people knocking in shop windows. And the same thing is that, you know, this country has a, 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 to an astonishing level obeyed lockdown. But the, those make for very boring pictures. Pictures of people crammed together on a beach, you know, make for very good pictures. Um, can I just can I just have one thing? Um, the Fawcett Society actually did some uh, research with Ipsos Mori. Uh, I think it was last week, which did show that women are much more um, hesitant about coming out of lockdown and women were much more likely to have obeyed the rules in terms of staying in and shielding and, and all of that kind of stuff. But I think what's extraordinary is that the the kind of the government's attitude having been incredibly strict with us all and, and quite frightening in terms of the stay at home and don't leave the house and protect lives and protect the NHS and all that sort of thing, which was a very arresting message, which worked, is now suddenly so, you know, cavalier in terms of, right, everybody can just sort of do what they want, even in Parliament. I mean, the idea that they're forcing MPs to come back to Parliament, um, many of whom are elderly, many of whom are, are caring for people who need to be shielded, uh, BME people we know are more at risk. Um, there's a BME MP, Vivendra Sharma, who said, look, you know, this is disenfranchising me. And, you know, if this is how the government is, if this is what they're prepared to do to parliamentarians and the risks, it does make you think, God, they're really playing quite fast and loose with the rest of us. And, you know, you can see why some people are kind of besides themselves with worry about the easing of this lockdown. Yeah, I mean, you probably paid more attention because I've been trying to stay away from the news. Um, but I should, but I can't remember seeing a single picture of a government minister in a mask. Yeah. Have, have I missed Have I missed that? Because I, I noticed it was very notable that Joe Biden went to do a visit and he wore a mask. Whereas, and again, I haven't seen Trump wear a mask the entire time. And this is, I think, a really big problem because you, what it says is that masks are for the little people. Like we're too important to, to you know, we've got big jobs to do. And it's actually, the, the, the point is that everybody thinks that their job is relatively important. Otherwise, they, you know, they wouldn't be doing it. And, and actually by leading by example, but I think there's a problem there, which is, you know, I think this is a very macho government. And I think Trump is certainly a very, very, in a, hallucinatorily weird way thinks of himself as very macho and there's a kind of thing of like real men don't wear masks like this is a kind of like we're cowboys you know we're, we're you know we're out doing you know and which has always been the problem of you know people not wearing ear defenders on building sites and all that kind of stuff people not using proper safety equipment that it's kind of there's something kind of humbling and nanny-ish about doing it and it would send out a, a much better message if if you saw people routinely from the top of government in wearing masks I wanted to ask you about that, Helen, actually, because I was wondering what the deal was with masks. I mean, we've been advised to wear them in enclosed spaces in shops and public transport. So I mean, I was in big Sainsbury's this morning and I was literally, apart from my daughter, the only person wearing it in the whole store. Um, we, we're not doing this at all. And I'm wondering why not? Why wouldn't you do that? 
Well, the government hasn't done particularly much messaging um, around it, which um, Stephen Bush, my old colleague from New Statesman, has always suspected was about the fact that we, we didn't have enough supply of masks. So they didn't want to advise everybody to wear one, um, particularly if people then started buying medical grade ones off the internet and, and depriving them, um, you know, NHS workers of them. But also that they are a, they are a collectivist symbol in a, in a pretty individualist society. I think that's the point, is the mask is actually most useful for protecting other people from your droplets um, and so asking them you are asking people to do something sort of sacrificial for other people and also fundamentally they're quite unpleasant to wear I don't know about you but every time I put one on I always manage to steam up my glasses terribly mm-hmm. um, so I think there is just a fundamental sort of resistance to to doing it and there ne- would need to be some concerted leading by example and a messaging campaign about why they're important and we haven't had either of and, those and let's not forget we have got a prime minister who you know made huge shook hands with people but also made huge headlines about how the fact that anybody who covered their face was like a bank robber or a terrorist or a you know so I think there's something kind of deep within the the psyche of the this you know the ideology of this particular government which is like they're not mad keen on promoting this because you know of kind of past you know thoughts that they've had about people that cover their faces I mean that is how I think that's sort of where we are you know Helen's right we should have had I mean Matt Hancock should be leading with example the Prime Minister should be leading with by, by example but but we're not gonna we're not gonna see that and I'm sure and when we see those RMPs queuing I mean Mark talked about the IKEA queues I mean that's basically what, what Westminster Hall is going to be like it's going to be like an IKEA voting queue but with no meatballs at the end for RMPs it's going to take like four days to vote none of that I'm sure very few will be masks ikea without meatballs is a horrifying thought that is the dystopian hell we are in it really is has it come to this mark what's your um view on masks have you been wearing one does it sort of change your interactions with people if you do yeah yeah i'd say first of all i agree that it is not very pleasant experience to uh to wear one you're very conscious of your own breath it feels quite constricting but those are very small considerations compared with uh the prospect of not potentially passing on a disease and the mask thing, to me, kind of exemplifies all of the um, muddled guidelines that we've had throughout this, really. if um, For a start, as everyone keeps saying, it's very peculiar that most of the authority figures that we see aren't wearing them themselves. I live in London, so there was a, a period where Sadiq Khan himself was saying, you should definitely wear a mask at, at the same time as the government was saying it's more or less optional. Uh, where I live, there are signs up in some places saying you should really have a mask on if you're in here, but it, the shop next door doesn't have a sign like that. So all in all, like almost everything else, it's become discretionary. It seems as if you're more or less, every time you leave the house, you have to say to yourself, do I fancy the mask or not? And I would say that it's very peculiar to go out in the streets and see some people observing the mask rule and others not, just as it's weird in Tesco that some people are scrupulously keeping their two metres and other people couldn't be closer if they were basically asking you for a piggyback and that I think when we look back on this period if there is a second spike which I hope there won't be we'll all reflect on the fact that there were hardly any proper rules just an awful lot of guidelines and a fair bit of that I think as has already been covered does come down to this sort of slightly macho sense that and also to this what you might call this sort of British exceptionalism this thing like well we'll be all right we we can tough this out uh, there'll be a little bit of inconvenience but this uh, this idea that people always fall back on that we won the war seems to have given people the idea that we will also in inverted commas win this without having to necessarily graft as much as some other countries have of course the winning the war requires quite a lot of mask wearing among other things 
Meanwhile, as the Prime Minister rattled off lists of things he wanted to unlock, the scandal surrounding Dominic Cummings' lockdown jaunt to Durham has continued unabated. No, we're not, hashtag moving on. And one of the side products was a new hashtag denouncing the press as hashtag scum media. Does this represent what people really think? Where was it coming from? What does it mean when populists turn people against the media? And with the tabloids calling for a hasty end to the lockdown, are the government under pressure to obey the papers? Helen, this scum media hashtag has been circulating since the coming saga came to light. Can you explain a bit more about it? Yeah, I went and had a, a bit of a poke around, actually. Um, and it seems to be mostly coming from uh, pro-Brexit, pro-Trump accounts. Now, those things aren't always bots, but it's often quite hard to distinguish the ones from bots, from what people who just, you know, post an awful lot of tweets but there are you fall into a sort of strange world of of real people and real personalities one of the people who's most keen on it is his pop quiz do you remember gerard batten yes i do behind the fridge yeah no no that's godfrey bloom is sluts don't clean behind the fridge gerard batten is is another ukip former he thought he was leader of ukip for about 10 minutes they just all got the Um, same initials is that what it is I think that's the law if you join UKIP, yeah. Um, and then and another guy who's verified, his name appeared to be David Vance. And he's one of those people who's verified and then there's no bio information. So you're like, verified as what? <laughs> um, and, and he, I could answer that, but you can't, I, it, it's probably not repeatable what he's verified as. He's awful, that but, guy. Horrendous. But this is what I think is, is <laughs> this is what I think is extraordinary is, is that, you know, that, I mean, let's not go into the weirdness of Twitter too much, but that, that, that you know, that those, those are the people who are kind of boosting this hashtag essentially. And, you know, it's hard to differentiate because I, I don't know about other people on this call, but I, um, I get as much vitriol from the left and to the right. And I think that hatred of the, the media seems to be quite, um, quite a widespread opinion on, on Twitter when it's saying things that you particularly kind of don't don't like but so i'm sure that there are similar hashtags that are circulating in some of those fringe left kind of ones but this one seems to be particularly a fringe right kind of movement despite those using the hashtag being overwhelmingly anti-eu in a yougov poll 52 percent of leavers thought cummings should resign so this movement doesn't really represent popular opinion does it it is one of the few joys to come out of this is the fact that actually the polling on coming suggested that lots of leavers also thought that he had done something unacceptable and I was worried there was a situation in which basically that weirdly the kind of the way that the culture war coalesced was that Neil Ferguson should resign because he was in favour of lockdown <laughs> um, and this was a thing that if you were pro-Brexit you were against lockdown and, and I just think I thought I hate this idea that we're moving into a world in which how you feel about objectively the same set of actions is entirely dependent on whether they're done by someone in your kind of political tribe or not so I think we should be very thankful for the fact that there were people who were ideologically aligned with Dominic Cummings who could nonetheless see that he had broken the rules. I thought it was a great moment because Dominic Cummings did promise to Mm. unite the country um, after Brexit and he certainly did do that with his trip to Barnard Castle. It was the most harmonious that Twitter's probably ever been actually, yeah. (laughs) It's beautiful. (laughs) Mark, did you notice scum media? Do you think it represents anything real or is it all just got up by bots? Yeah, like Helen says, there there are quite a number of people who exist in this peculiar domain where they're not bots, they are humans, but they've only got some of the recognisable quality of humans. And uh, it's, and their, their thoughts don't seem to, they don't seem to put any uh, internal pressure on themselves to have kind of coherent set of values. Like even talking about scum media as a movement seems a bit generous, really. What it feels like is a kind of buzzword or buzz phrase 
put about by, unfortunately, it's not just because of Trump, Trumpism, but we do live in a climate where almost any sort of anything that can come under the banner of media runs the risk of being accused of bias or of lies by a bunch of people who don't need to show they're working at all. And part of the problem is the media is just such an enormous idea. You'll quite often see people saying you can't trust the media, the mainstream media, but using, using the media to make that point. You'll often see people go on TV to talk about how biased TV is. You'll see people on the BBC giving sound bites about why you can't trust the BBC and so on. Uh, you can't help thinking that anyone who generically opposes the media, all of it, every single way we've devised to uh, convey news is uh, just somebody kind of surfing this populist wave of, well, anti-intellectualism is not quite the right phrase, but it's a pretty easy position to put yourself in to say, you can't trust anything you hear. I'm not going to believe anything I hear. I'm going to make my own mind up without any facts. And, and a surprising number of people do seem happy to do that. But I also think, although they're not bots, the influence of these people is more limited than we think. There are quite a lot of people who are verified on Twitter who seem to have quite large followings, but I, I think comparatively few people actually take seriously anything they're saying. At least I really hope that's true. Helen, the Daily Mail declared it Happy Monday and the Sun went with we'll meet again and barbecues again. The Star even went with the story about rats doing well on lockdown with boom time for rats because apparently these rats are just loving the empty offices. They're just, you know, dancing around the ballroom, loving it with the water coolers. Um, this is the language of the over 50s. Yeah, ending lockdown is something that will harm older people most. So what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is that over 50s buy newspapers and therefore the cultural references of newspapers are entirely I can't boom time for rats is a particularly extraordinary one I, every so often you will see a tabloid front page that will reference something that is you know not even in my lifetime and you think <laughs> who is you know who is this being written for it's extraordinary but I think the problem is that for you know the paper the idea that they're onboarding sorry to use a horrible jargon phrase younger readers for paper products is just that's just not happening I mean I've just been doing some uh, very sad research into what's happened to newspaper sales during lockdown. You know, the Metro is is now the best-selling newspaper on the ABCs, which is 1.3 million readers. The Sun is the highest paid for at 1.2. Um, you know, but the Telegraph didn't even report its figures, although claims to have something, you know, something like 440,000. You know, this is a this is a dying industry, and I say that with upset because I, I work into it. Uh, I work in it, um, and it is trying to cater to its core audience, and and it thinks this is what they want to hear. Because even the free sheets are screwed, aren't they? Because their whole business model is being distributed on public transport. And we're not supposed to take that except for essential reasons anymore. And we're definitely not going to be picking up other people's discarded metros um, on the train. Absolutely. So the same for magazines. You know, huge amounts of magazine sales come at airports and train stations, what's called the travel retail business. And, and that has just completely collapsed. Um, and, and, and it is a really dark time. I mean, the Atlantic, which I work for, laid off 17% of its editorial staff two weeks ago. Um, Fox has made layoffs. Vice. I'm sure that they're coming at the at the papers um, in Britain too. They may just be on a slightly you know bigger lag because they have bigger cash reserves, or you know we're waiting for the economic impact to become quite obvious. Um, but that's I mean that's the other side to the to, to Mark's point about people saying we don't trust the media. The people have to find out the things that they don't trust from a media that is itself shrinking. <laughs> the number of times you see someone posting, you won't read a this about this on the BBC and you think well how did you hear about it actually but also as I mean as, as someone who works on a free sheet the evening standard I mean we've had huge problems um 
I presume mainly because, of course, we would give them out for people to go into the tubes and people aren't using the tubes. I mean, we moved to a, a kind of home delivery service, which has um, just about propped us up, but we have had to furlough so many staff and the paper came very, very clo- close to, to, to folding. And I think with this kind of media scum hashtag, there's a lot of revelry in the fact that the media industry, which has got its own challenges with digital, and as Helen says, it's kind of dying anyway, or certainly finding it very difficult to survive. There's a sort of glee about, ha-ha, the newspaper I like is, is, is possibly going to close down. But I'm afraid you're a fool if you, if you kind of think that, because it is really important. You might not like a certain media outlet, but you, know, you really do not want to have a, an, a, an ever-reduced um, media landscape, because it will be the, the, the media which is backed with a lot of money from private people that, that flourish. And I did notice as well, in the heat of all the Dominic Cummings stuff, it, you know, I think we were all guilty of it. It wasn't just the scum media brigade. We all put our own projections about which side of the story we were on and then just proceeded to attack the messenger um, in terms of who was the journalist tweeting about it. Mm. And I do think, I think that is quite unhealthy from all sides. And I, I think I'm guilty of it. I think a lot of people who have my values are, are really guilty of that as well just attacking you know there are plenty of faults with the media there are structural problems there are so many genuine issues with the media but wishing death on the media is 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 not very uh, is not very wise finally one of the ideas that has done some seriously heavy lifting during this crisis is the concept of british common sense Boris Johnson declared good British common sense had got us through phase one of the virus and that it would continue to work in the second phase of fighting the disease. But as we've seen so far, common sense has given us people tombstoning in Dorset, partying in parks and the PM's maid advisor driving 30 miles to test his eyesight, as well as the worst death rate in Europe. Mark, we've been told the key to beating this disease is to deploy British common sense. But what actually is British common sense? Well, you might well ask. I, I don't really understand why we see ourselves as having more common sense than other countries. I think it might have something to do with, you'll hear this, um, even if you don't watch football, you hear this sort of thing bandied about quite a lot when there are World Cups on. The, the Spanish or the Italians are over-emotional. Other countries are kind of, uh, you know, people are too impulsive. It's too hot there. They, can't, they have to have a sleep in the day. All of these kind of 50s ideas that we still hold on to about other countries seem to still influence the way that we see ourselves there is this sense that and i think partly it has to do with how much you've traveled probably how uh, opened up you are to the rest of the world but there are a fair number of people in this country who whose default position is that uh, the british way of doing things is kind of by definition the right way and everything else is a bit weird and eccentric and so when we see other countries going into very very uh, quick and brutal lockdown like they did in italy or wearing masks more uh, whatever it might be, there's a substantial number of people here that think, well, that's maybe they need to do that, but we'll be all right. And I think that is probably quite harmful. I also think, as various people have touched on here, getting over a situation like this is about collectivism. Uh, it's not about every single person thinking, well, I'll just look after myself and it should be fine. Johnson's thing about common sense is uh, it's pretty on brand for Boris. He, he, he's very good at, and I, I say it reluctantly, but having seen some of his briefings, he's very good at appealing to the British sense that we can beat this, uh, our resolve 
And you know, if, we, if we just kind of eat enough ambrosia and beans on toast and stuff, we'll basically see this off. But the trouble is you, you can't have rules that are based on everybody's common sense because as we've seen, for a start, everyone has a very different idea of what common sense is. And it feels a bit like saying we can defeat this with common sense. It feels a bit like saying uh, there's no actual speed limit on the motorways, just more or less use your common sense. Or when considering whether to uh, kill someone or not, again, just trying to deploy your common sense. There are quite good reasons why we don't have governance by common sense. So it feels a little bit of a stretch to say that we can defeat a pandemic that way. It's just, again, it suits this conservative idea of like, we won't interfere too much, let people get on with what they want to do, most people are good people who want to get on all of these well-meaning sounding uh, conservative ethos things, which I, I think come at the expense of actually having a sense of collective purpose. Aisha, is the PM in any position to lecture people about using common sense, given his insistence on shaking people's hands early in the pandemic and you know, subsequently catching the virus? Um, well, sometimes I wonder if the PM is in a position to lecture anybody about anything, given everything that's gone on in his life. And let's not forget, we are on track to be sort of the worst, second worst planet uh, country on the planet in terms of um, our death toll and, and the handling of all of this. But I think common sense is one of those phrases which, when it began, was a perfectly noble, good, sensible, common sense thing to do. I think sometimes in politics... Um, language and ideas are often sort of locked away from, you know, everyone being able to understand them by being wrapped up in sort of highfalutin language and concepts and theory and it sounding like academia. So I'm probably somebody who thinks, you know, you should try and take a sort of a, a common sense approach to, to politics and explaining ideas. But I think it's one of those phrases which has got sort of subverted and turned into something like quite negative. A bit like I think the phrase woke, um, you know, starts it off as a really good, admirable phrase. And then some people have turned it into something different. I think that's exactly what's happened um, with common sense. But I think the irony of how the right uses the common uses common sense is there's actually no common sense in how they even use it. Like we've just discussed, you know, the the, the fiasco in Parliament, the the fact that the, there doesn't seem to be any common sense with how the, the rules are being applied. There was no common sense to your everyday person's interpretation of of Dominic Cummings. So I feel like, it, you know, they're almost sort of playing mind games with the public with this phrase, common sense. And what common sense has ended up, the reality of their common sense approaches, um, just look at what's happening on all our beaches. You know, you had uh, Tobias Elwood saying that actually Dorset may have to impose a much more severe lockdown because people didn't use their common sense and were like flocking to the the beaches and the R rate might go up. I mean, the mayor of Hackney um, sent out some really heart-rending tweets this weekend saying people were not using their common sense in the park. And not only were they leaving litter everywhere, people were, there was like human feces, like it'll be left everywhere. I mean, so the kind of common sense thing has really fallen apart because the government showed no common sense about how to sort of deploy that argument. We don't need common sense. Right now we want rules. We want kind of, we want the nanny state right now. We want Jacob Reese style nanny state. We don't want this sort of kind of just make it up as you go along, just do what you feel. It's just, it, it, it's so not, it's so not working. And it's really counterintuitive to actually, um, you know, what a lot of, I think, conservatives really think about all of this. We've come to the end of the podcast, which means it's time to ask our panel for their escape routes from politics. 
it's getting warmer, ever warmer, and some of us are firing up a barbecue and setting fire to the Lancashire moorlands, but what about the rest of us? What are we doing to pass the time? Helen, what have you been up to? Unfortunately, I'm going to give you my honest answer, which is going to make me sound like a massive twat. But I've been watching an FX series that is only available in America called Mrs. America, which stars Kate Blanchett as Phyllis Schlafly, the great, um, well, not great, but the, the like hugely popular and influential conservative um, leader who was the model for Serena Joy in The Handmaid's Tale. And it's the story of her fighting against the Equal Rights Amendment um, versus Shirley Chisholm. Gloria Stein and Bella Abzug, um, Betty Friedan. Um, and I'm hoping that if I'm nice enough about it in enough places, that at some point the BBC might buy it. And we can, we can all get to see Kate Blanchett's amazingly icy performance as this incredibly, you know, uh, opportunistic social conservative. And Mark, what have you been up to? My um, psychological escape route has mostly been through TV as well. My girlfriend and I have been, we just last night finished watching Ozark, which is a, so far three season long uh, Netflix drama where basically since this happened, since lockdown began, we've seemed to have gravitated towards series where people are in just worse and worse situations than ourselves. The central couple in Ozark are played by Jason Bateman and uh, Laura Linney are basically people who, even at the start of the show, they're in trouble because essentially his job is to launder money for a drug cartel. And uh, in typical Netflix drama style, they make a series of, bad decisions and get into worse and worse trouble and i think if you if you feel like this has been a fairly stressful period that a lot of your work has gone wrong or disappeared that you can't really see uh, a way out it's quite therapeutic watching two people who really have screwed things up incredibly badly and have to keep killing people um but we've run out of ozark now so i'm in the market for another tv show where people are clearly having a worse life than me. Aisha, what's your go-to for self-isolation escapism at the moment? Well, I too have just finished watching Ozark as well, Mark, and I was absolutely gripped. I was completely horrified by it. But it did make... I I mean, it made watching the daily press briefing feel quite relaxing. Exactly, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Again, everything that we're watching in our own lives does kind of pale by comparison. It was just so gripping, so brutal. It was so bleak. And the way it was filmed, it's very dark and everything's very bleak. But then I finished that and I have been watching um, on Amazon Prime, Little Fires Everywhere, which feels incredibly pertinent given given the the race riots in um, America. It stars Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington. And it's the tale of of what starts off as a kind of friendship between two women, which really sours along kind of race lines and white privilege and actually it's really well worth watching it's gripping and it it just gives such a brilliant kind of brutal insight into race relations but also how a lot of well-meaning kind of um you know white people think they're being really helpful to, to sort of black community and minorities but they're not they're doing it to make themselves feel better and they're actually entrenching their own privilege and their own sort of prejudices it is actually really good and definitely worth watching now as america burns I'll keep an eye for that um i've been watching deep which is called call my agent in english on on netflix it's french netflix and it's, it's just really trashy and brainless i love it it's just all about uh, an uh, actors agency in france and uh, in paris and yeah i highly recommend it and also i have to say i did the first my first run on couch to 5k yesterday which i cannot believe are words i would ever utter in my life <laughs> 
How did you find it? How did you get on? It was on? fine. It was great. I was really pleased with myself as well, because obviously it is, you know, the, the, the simplest thing ever to start with. Um, but uh, the fact that I could do it without feeling massively out of breath was also very satisfying. So I was, I was really pleased with myself at the end. And I was listening to Taylor Swift as I did it. It was because, you know, like I say, I'm just kind of going, you know, <laughs> trashing in my cultural taste during lockdown. We've got enough problems without having to concentrate on stuff too much. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to our panel, Mark Watson, Helen Lewis and Aisha Hazarika. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget you can back us on the crowdfunding platform, Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. And if you back us, you'll get a shout-out on the show like this. from me for your support to Ioannis, Mark Adamson, Andrew Morgan, Kate, Sarah Vaughan, Gabby and Martin Quask. Hello from me to Alan Entwistle, Nikki Millwood, Jonathan Priest, Martin Ridgway, Siobhan McCluskey, Liz Bailey and Ben Rees. And huge thanks from me to Olaf, Nim Chimpsky, Natasha Broke, Andrew McMichael, Gordon Robison, James Dowdor and Michelle Lincoln. The Bunker was presented by Ross Taylor with Helen Lewis and Aisha Hazarika. The producer is Andrew Harrison and the assistant producer is Jacob Archibald. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>